Uh, our reading this morning is from Luke's uh, Gospel, chapter 1, uh, starting at verse 26. If you're using one of the Red Church Bibles, it's on page 1025, unless you have one of those versions that doesn't have it on that page, but it's near enough. Um, there's two different versions of this, I've discovered. So Luke, chapter 1, uh, cha uh, verse 26. Let's hear God's word. In the sixth month of Elizabeth's pregnancy, God sent the angel Gabriel to Nazareth, a town in Galilee, to a virgin pledged to be married to a man named Joseph, a descendant of David. The virgin's name was Mary. The angel went to her and said, Greetings, you who are highly favoured. The Lord is with you. Mary was greatly troubled at his words. Mary was greatly troubled at his words and wondered what kind of greeting this might be. But the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary. You have found favor with God. You will conceive and give birth to a son, and you are to call him Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. The Lord God will give him the throne of his father, uh, father David, and he will reign over Jacob's descendants forever. His kingdom will never end. How will this be, Mary asked the angel, since I am a virgin? The angel answered, The Holy Spirit will come on you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. So the Holy One to be born will be called the Son of God. Even Elizabeth, your relative, is going to have a child in her old age, and she who was said to be unable to conceive is in her sixth month. For no word from God will ever fail. I am the Lord's servant, Mary answered. May your word, be to me, uh, may your word to me be fulfilled. Then the angel left her. At that time, Mary got ready and hurried to a town in the hill country of Judea, where she entered Zechariah's home and greeted Elizabeth. When Elizabeth heard Mary's greeting, the baby leaped in her womb, and Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit. In a loud voice, she exclaimed, Blessed are you among women, and blessed is the child you will bear. But why am I so favored that the mother of my Lord should come to me? As soon as the sound of your greeting reached my ears, the baby in my womb leaped for joy. Blessed is she who has believed that the Lord would fulfill his promises to her. And Mary said, my soul glorifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior, for he has been mindful of the humble state of his servant. From now on, all generations will call me blessed, for the Mighty One has done great things for me. Holy is his name. His mercy extends to those who fear him from generation to generation. He has performed mighty deeds with his arm. He has scattered those who are proud in their own most thoughts. He has brought down rulers from their thrones, but has lifted up the humble. He has filled the hungry with good things, but has sent the rich away empty. He has helped his servant Israel, remembering to be merciful to Abraham and his descendants forever, just as he promised our ancestors. Mary stayed with Elizabeth for about three months and then returned home. May the Lord bless his word to, uh, to us this morning. 
It's a song that uh, was written with Christmas in mind, uh, but it's one of those songs that takes us through not just the, the events of Christmas, but also of Easter and also looking to the future and the hope that, that lies ahead of us. And I think one of the uh, things I've often felt about Christmas is that so much is centered around just what happened at the first Christmas. Well, if I'm going to talk about in church, if you go out into the world, you, you never hear about what happened at the first Christmas, but you do get all sorts of interesting television adverts, which you can never remember what they're for, but they're quite entertaining. But it's so much uh, that in, in Christian circles, we focus on Christmas and actually forget why Jesus Christ came into the world in the first place, which was to suffer and to die for us, to be crucified in our place, to take our punishment and our sins, and then be raised from the dead and ascends into heaven, guaranteeing our hope and our future. Well, this morning we're going to, uh, it's really one of the first, no, it isn't the first um, sermon about Christmas, because Steve Jones talked about the uh, the, the prophecies in Isaiah. Uh, was it last week, Steve? Yeah. Um, but we're going to look at uh, Mary's, well, it's called a song. But actually, it doesn't actually say in the scriptures that she sang. If you look in the NIV, it says Mary's song. I looked in my English Standard Version, and it was something called the Magnificat, which I have to say is nothing to do with very mighty lions. Think about it. Magnific Never mind. Thank you. Uh, I can always rely on Phil to laugh at my jokes. <laughs> okay. Um, we're not actually told what Mary, how Mary said this, just said that she said it. But over the years, these words have been turned into uh, to, to chants that have been sung in churches over the years. They've been reworded into hymns. We sing one of them quite often. Uh, Tell out my soul, the greatness of the Lord, uh, based on, on these words. And uh, they, they are used in all sorts of ways. It's a wonderful exclamation of praise and thanksgiving to God. But one of the things, if you just read through, I'm going to call it a song because I won't be able to concentrate on it otherwise. If you read through this song, is that it doesn't actually mention Jesus. It doesn't mention, uh, certainly as a baby. And we have to remember that although you can use these words for all sorts of praise and thanksgiving and recounting the goodness of God to us, that in this particular context, it was all about a baby. We see that from the, uh, the preceding verses. Uh, and, and it's not, not really just about one baby, but also includes another one as well. So we went back to the beginning of chapter 1. You uh, hear about the birth of John the Baptist being foretold. The news being received slightly differently by uh, John's father, Zechariah, than, than Mary's attitude. But th th these two women, Elizabeth and Mary have quite a lot in common. We're told that they are relatives. Some versions of the Bible call them cousins. I get very confused knowing what different r relations are. I can work out parents and children and grandparents and so on, but when it gets to the sort of second cousin twice removed type stuff, I have no idea what it means. And I defer to my wife who understands these things. Um, but 
they, they were related, we are told. That's good enough for me. Um, both uh, pregnancies were foretold. They were, for, uh, uh, they were told about them before it ha actually happened. The angel Gabriel went to uh, Elizabeth's husband, Zechariah, and told him that they were going to have a baby boy. And he was to call him John. Um, the angel Gabriel went to Mary and told her that she was going to have a son and to call him Jesus. Uh, in part of that same message, uh, verse 15 of chapter 1, uh, Zechariah is told that his son is going to be great in the sight of the Lord. Verse 32, Mary is told that her son is going to be great. He is the son of the Most High. In verse 15, uh, John is, uh, um, Zechariah is told that John will be filled with the Holy Spirit even before he is born. Mary is told in verses 32 and 33 uh, that her son will be given a throne and will reign in an everlasting kingdom. Zechariah is told in verses 16 to 17 that John will bring back many to the Lord God to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. And Mary is told in verse 35 that, uh, that her son would be called holy, the son of God. Luke leaves out some details that the other gospel writers puts in, uh, particularly when it comes to describing who Jesus is of what he was coming for. Matthew, for instance, in uh, chapter 1, uh, verses 18 to 23, writes uh, this. Um, yeah, uh, this is how the birth of Jesus the Messiah came about. His mother Mary was pledged to be Joseph, pledged to be married to Joseph, but before they came together, she was found to be pregnant through the Holy Spirit. Because Joseph, her husband, was faithful to the law and yet did not want to expose her to public disgrace, he had in mind to divorce her quietly. But after he had considered this, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream and said, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary home as your wife, because what is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will give birth to a son and you are to give him the name Jesus, because he will save his people from their sins. Uh, the name Jesus means the Lord saves. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had said through the prophet. The virgin will conceive and give birth to a son and they will call him Emmanuel, which means God with us. And we, I'm not going to read it now. You can look at John chapter 1 and wonderful description of, uh, uh, of Jesus described as the word. The word became flesh and dwelt among us. Oh, in the beginning, it starts off, it was, was the Word, and the, the Word was uh, with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Talking about how special this child would be. So, the angel Gabriel has come to their respective, or to, to Mary and to the father of uh, John the Baptist. Both children will have great roles, but one will serve the other. And then we re uh, read earlier on how Mary is told about Elizabeth. Gabriel tells her that Elizabeth, uh, quite surprisingly and perhaps miraculously, has, been, uh, uh, has become pregnant. Elizabeth's become, uh, become pregnant in her old age. She'd always been considered not to be able to have children. Uh, led to um, Zechariah 
treating the angel's message with a bit of scorn. You know, how can this be? You must be, you, can, you cannot be serious. If he'd been an American tennis player, he'd have probably said that. Um, and, uh, you know, the uh, a angel's response to that is, was to strike Zechariah dumb, as if to say, well, if you can't say anything sensible, you're not going to talk at all until for nine months until the baby is born and you see it comes true. But Gabriel tells Mary, and her response is very different. She asks, how, uh, how will it, not how can this be, but how will this be? Uh, she wants to know how it's going to happen. She's not yet married. She's still a virgin, and she's going to have a, ch a child. Uh, there must have been all sorts of questions going through her mind, so she asks the obvious one. And the angel tells her that this baby would be uh, conceived through the work of God in her. Very special. And then Gabriel tells Mary that Elizabeth is also pregnant. So Mary sets out and goes to Elizabeth's home. And as she enters and greets her, um, the, uh, John the Baptist basically starts his ministry. He's there to prepare the way for the Lord. He's there to tell people he's coming. And when Mary carrying Jesus walks into the house, John, still in his mother's womb, leaps for joy, we're told. That's a, a remarkable thing to, uh, to experience, I'd imagine. And Elizabeth herself is filled with the Holy Spirit. In a loud voice, she proclaimed, Blessed are you among women, and uh, so on. And, and that's really what leads then up to uh, Mary's song, the Magnificat. It comes from the Latin. It's nothing to do with cats. Okay. Um, and she, she is praising God for what happens. But let's, as we read through the song, as we look in it, Let's not forget that what's occasioned it is the uh, forthcoming birth of Jesus, the Messiah, the one who had been promised for years beforehand. And Mary, as she starts in verse 46, uh, starts off talking about the blessing that she is receiving, very personal. My soul glorifies the Lord and my spirit rejoices in God, my Savior, for he has been mindful of the humble state of his servant from now on all generations will call me blessed and we can see that because we are still talking about her today two thousand odd years later the mighty one has done great things for me holy is his name and then she goes on and talks differently and talks more generally about the blessings that others are going to receive as well but let's just consider first of all the blessing that he, uh, that, that mary is receiving and understand this, that she's not talking about how great she is, but she's talking about what God has done for her. The mighty one has done great things for me. She talks about her humble state. Now that is probably referring as much as anything else to her state and place in society. Who was she? We, I, I can't find any reference to uh, what her background was. We know that she did marry Joseph and he was a carpenter, but I don't know what her, her parents did or anything like that. Not even quite sure where she lived before all this happened. I might have missed a, a point or two. I'm sure if I have, somebody will tell me before I go home this morning. But you've got 
you've got Mary here, and she's talking about her humble state. Let's realize what, what the significance of that is, though. Because although she is said, and Joseph is said to be descended from King David, that doesn't imply that she is therefore living in a palace or something like that. Jill's interested in um, family tree, family history type stuff, and uh, has traced my, my family line in three different directions now, isn't it, you, you found us? Well, one is that apparently I'm descended from the first kings of Finland, which also means that John is as well, and therefore his children are as well. Um, it, it is some time ago, something like two or 300 AD, and I can tell you it makes absolutely no difference to my life whatsoever. I'm sure if I went to Helsinki or somewhere like that and, and walked into the equivalent of Morrison's there, I, they wouldn't treat me anything differently. And they would probably throw me out if I did try to sort of come up. I was born on a housing estate in North London, all right? Um, have I got this right? That there's also a Welsh link as well that you found recently. Yeah, probably, she says. We'll, we'll talk about that later. I can't remember the details. I'm rather more impressed with the Welsh one than the, the Scandinavian one. Anyway, Mary is a bit like that, probably. Just an ordinary young woman living in an ordinary place. Not one of the high and mighty rulers of the land. Not a special person that's marked out to, by, by society. Her humble state. But you also see it in her humility because she isn't talking about, look how great I am, God is using me. She's just saying, the mighty one has done great things for me. You see her humility. And it's something which we need to bear in mind because we are all used in different ways by God. Some people have very public and uh, in nationally known roles. Uh, and it's often the way that God works. When he wants something to be done, he calls somebody to do it by his power and his strength. He wanted to uh, build a people that belonged to him, and he called Abraham. He wanted to deliver them out of Egypt when they were slaves, and he rose up Moses. You've got all the various prophets and uh, people like King David and prophets like Elijah and Elisha and Isaiah and Jeremiah and Ezekiel and all the rest of them. You come into the New Testament, you find him raising up the apostles, people like Matthew and John, and um, you wanted the scriptures being uh, 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 written, and so there's Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Paul, Peter, and, uh, and others. And so when God wants to do something, he so often calls somebody to a particular role. And the danger for that person is that they, they think it's all about them. The ones we see in Scripture sometimes are not entirely perfect. And they take their position for themselves. But this is about the Messiah. And Mary's role in that is a very special one, never to be repeated. But she has got the right attitude. It's not about her, it's about Jesus. It's about God. And we have to remember as well that when God uses us in some way, it's not about us, it's about Jesus. 
We are merely signposts. We are mere servants of his. And if we, if we get that wrong and it becomes about us, then we become hindrances. Just mention that in passing. Mary sets a, a good example for us here. It's not about her. It's about God. And then she goes on in verse 50 about the blessings for others. Again, reminding ourselves that this is about the baby, about Jesus, although he's not mentioned by name. Um, there's no mention of baby things in this particular part of the song. It is about him. He is contained in the promises that uh, are referred to uh, in verses 54, 55. Um, going back to Steve's sermon last week, Isaiah 9, talking about the child that was to be born, who was then to be king for, forever. Uh, he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace, uh, born of a virgin, promised beforehand. And this is all part of God's great salvation plan to bring his people into glory, into heaven for all eternity. It's the stuff that makes it possible for us to be born again of the Spirit of God, for us to be sitting here today recognizing that there is a God and knowing him and loving him and following him and knowing his blessing upon us. None of that would be possible but for the events that Mary is praising God for in this song. It's about Jesus. Mary is not setting out to um, preach a sermon to Elizabeth and to the unborn babies. She is voicing her praise. And the great things that she talks about are not just for her, but for others. Think back in verse 49, the Lord has done great things for me. Holy is his name. She's not really just thinking about the fact that she's going to have a baby. Great though that might be for her. But it's who the baby is and what that baby is going to do for her is the great things that God is doing for her. He is showing mercy to all generations. It's not just something for there and then. It's not just something that they could look back to in the glory days of Israel, whenever they might have been. Uh, looking back and saying, oh yes, God has done great things for us. He is still doing great things. He's still doing them today and still more to come in the future. The promises that have yet to be fulfilled. I mean, I have to say, much as though when Baptist Church is a wonderful church to belong to, we aren't in heaven yet. You might have noticed. And everything is going to be so much better, even than this. It is a wonderful thought that God is still fulfilling his promises and which means that actually all the little aggravations and some I'm sure some of you are sitting there thinking oh won't Baptist Church great yeah well it is really because we're saved by God it's all about God not about us but there are irritations and things which go on within uh, even our church life here that are not perfect and not wonderful but one day everything will be made new and we can look forward to that whilst we, even now, we seek to uh, live in a way that pleases God. He shows mercy to all generations, ours as much as Mary's. He has done mighty deeds. Uh, we can look back and see what God has done for his people in the past. On those days when you 
thinking it seems so hard to keep on going and do I really want to struggle on for another 20, 30, 40, 50, 60 years? Well, look back and remind yourself of what God has done and know that he has not changed. He can still help you even today. And it talks about scattering the proud, bringing down rulers and so many of the the trials and tribulations that come to us come from people who, uh, it, is, it is all about them. And quite a few of them are amongst rulers, aren't there? People where it's all about them and not about what they're doing and their service and who they're doing it for. Scattering the proud, bringing down rulers, lifting up the humble and the poor and the lowly. You find these reversals sort of being referred to again and again in the scriptures uh, where you know the, the, the rich he brings down and the poor he lifts up the, 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 the proud and the arrogant and therefore the, probably the rich and the famous brought low and the humble lifted up you get to see the referral there and then you've got the poor and the hungry being uh, referred to. He's filled the hungry with good things, but sent the rich away empty. He has helped his servant Israel, remembering to be merciful to Abraham and his descendants forever. And spiritually, we are those descendants. We stand in the same line because, uh, because we belong to the people of God. He's made promises and he will, will fulfill them. But let's go back to the poor and the hungry. Uh, we're very conscious of talk at the moment about people struggling for, uh, uh, for because of rising prices for food and for energy and so on on every news broadcast for the, for the last few weeks. And for many people, it is a great concern. And it's there's hardship coming for, for so many. Yet we live in a relatively rich and prosperous country. There are many across the world uh, who would give everything to have even a part of what we have. And I'm not saying that to make us feel guilty or anything like that. It's just recognizing. And we come to a God who, who is able to help. We're told to seek first his kingdom and his righteousness and everything and, and all the things that we need will be given to us. Be, be, be provided for in that sense the jobs that we need, the, the, the help that he gives. He doesn't promise to give us everything we might want. I don't think there's the latest iPhone included in the deal there. But certainly, God does care for his people. But it's also in the context of, of looking ahead to the glorious future, where everything, as I've said already, will be made new, and where there'll be no want and no need, no hunger, no, no thirst. No sin, no, no death, no illness. And that is the promise that he has made to us. But the Bible talks about poverty in a different way as well. Think of the, uh, what are called the Beatitudes, another one of those Latin names that seems to creep into uh, our Bible headings. Uh, Matthew chapter 5, blessed are the poor in spirit for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And there we talk about a different sort of poverty, being poor in spirit. And it's another of those reversals, poor in spirit, and yet 
Theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And why? What does to be poor in spirit mean? It means that we understand our need, our spiritual need, that there is something where we fall, sh we fall short and we know it. person who doesn't think he's poor doesn't go around saying he's poor. Others may look on and say, oh, he's poor, he's only on minimum wage, but that person could be quite content and quite happy. And the same in the spiritual world, that a person who doesn't see his poverty doesn't consider himself to be poor. But blessed are the poor in spirit, Jesus says, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. It's talking about humility. It's talking about understanding our needs. It's talking about uh, that, that lack in us that only God can meet. We can go on through the Beatitude. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. And in the Old Testament, references to mourners were not just people who have been uh, bereaved. Sad and difficult that is. But it's talking those who are mourning over the state of their nation, the state of the people of God, and longing for God to come and restore them and revive them. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. That's how the New Testament translates it. Uh, but the, uh, the, 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 the I forget the, which psalm it's from. It's a quote from the psalm. Blessed are they, they will inherit the land, it says. And that for the Jews meant something special. It was the promised land. Where is our promised land? It's heaven, isn't it? Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness for they will be filled. I so thought we, we could go on. See these reversals, the things which the world might look on and say, well, you poor fellow, you know, you're worried about the s you, 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 your spiritual health. You're, you're, you're worried about the state of the nation and, uh, and the fact that they, people don't believe in God. You, you, you're longing for, for things to be good and right and righteous, whereas those who are a bit naughty on the side get so much more, what, what fools you are. And yet, the world may look on and scoff and scorn us, and yet the promises of God are to us and not to them. He lifts up the humble, and he, and he feeds the poor and the hungry. And what's our response to all of this? These promises are for us, they're fulfilled in Jesus. It's about the baby, the Messiah, the promised one, the Christ, who was promised for hundreds and hundreds of years before it happened, was coming to create a new kingdom where he would reign forever in justice and in righteousness. And it, those who are humble, those who understand their, their, their spiritual poverty, and they cry out to him because there is nowhere else to go, they cry out to him, they will be saved and brought into that kingdom for all eternity. And we see the example of humility that he sets. We're going to, um, I'm not sure we're, going, we're singing it. I'm sure we will sing it sometime over, uh, over Christmas. Lord, you were rich beyond all splendor. All for love's sake became poor. Philippians 2, you know, there he was, enthroned in all his glory, 
And he entered this world and became man and suffered on the cross for us. The King of kings, the Lord of lords, he through whom all things were made, crucified for us. And he chose to do that. He humbled himself. And what was Paul's message in Philippians 2? Your attitude should be the same as that of Jesus Christ. We need to humble ourselves. And we've got the example of the greatest act of humility shown by the greatest of all. So the call here really is twofold. One is to lay aside our pride and come humbly. Perhaps this Christmas time to take time to stop and reflect on that humility of Jesus Christ coming into this world. Uh, take a look at our lives and see if we become a bit proud, a bit self-centered, a bit, um, oh, it's all about me. And perhaps consciously repent and turn our attitudes back to it all being about, about God, about Jesus Christ, the Son of God. And of course, we've also got a wonderful example from Mary here about praising him. You know, it's, I don't know what you think of when I, I let's just say, if, if I was to tell you that we need to praise God, would you be uh, getting ready to stand up and sing another song? That is a way of praising God, isn't it? As I said earlier on, I don't think Mary actually sang these words. Maybe they've been recorded so someone must have made a note of them or been inspired by the Holy Spirit to remember them and I'm sure they have been sung, well, I know they've been sung time and time and time again but praising God is not just about singing songs praise is one of those things that goes on in all sorts of different ways and so I, I can't go through a sermon without having a little dig at those of you who like football um, there's a a football competition going on somewhere. Uh, you know, I'm not sure that England is quite as positive about it now as it uh, was yesterday. Um, but can you imagine that if in one of these matches there was a player who somehow managed to kick a ball with such power and put such a spin on it that it sails off into the air and circles around one of the lighting gantries and then comes back, bounces oddly on the centre spot and is spun over the heads of everybody, including the goalkeeper, into the net. I'm quite sure if that, I, I've got a vivid imagination, I'm sorry, but uh, I'm quite sure if something like that happened, there would be all sorts of praise heaped on that player. People would talk about what a great uh, kick that was and make a great big fuss about him and they would talk about it for years to come. That is a sort of praise, isn't it? People praise their football teams. They praise their favorite musicians. They might praise their husbands and their wives or their children or their parents, possibly. How do we praise our God? Now what are, what's happening when people praise their, uh, uh, praise their football teams and so on? They talk to others about it. They don't just sit there... Uh, well, they might sit there saying, yeah, great, great, great. But they want to tell someone about it. They want to praise their hero to their friends, 
you know, going to work the next day. And people are basically telling them to shut up by the end of the day because they can't stop talking about how wonderful it is. And we are people who are here to declare the praises of the one who, who has saved us. 1 Peter chapter 2, in that wonderful passage about the church, where people of his, of, of his own possession to declare the praises of him who brought us out of darkness into his wonderful light. And that's not just us singing hymns. It's not just us talking about him together. But it's declaring it. The word used there is not, it's not saying, oh, we're going to have a time of praise. Uh, it, it's saying, I want to tell others about how great God is. And Mary is shouting it out. And that's what we should be doing as well. It's what we're doing today. We have a carol service, hoping that people would come, but making it known that we are saved by God. We are people who praise our God.